Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been a while since I was on the air last, but I'm glad to be back on the air. And we are going to be discussing in this episode uh, part two of two to Pennsylvania. If you all need a little refresher, um, I can do that for you right now. When I was on the air again, or rather I should say when I was on the air last, (laughs) I remember um, explaining to you all that we would be doing a two-part series on Pennsylvania in signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the U.S. Constitution. Why would there need to be a two-part series on Pennsylvania? Well, it turns out from a, a question that I asked you all previously, a.k.a. a bonus question, how many delegates were there from Pennsylvania who attended the Constitutional Convention? Well, Pennsylvania led the way with eight. We discussed uh, about Benjamin Franklin and uh, Robert Morris from the uh, previous episode. We're going to discuss two more uh, signers in this episode uh, podcast of um, on uh, Pennsylvania, that is. Now, I'm not saying that the other four signers that aren't being discussed are not worth uh, learning about. They are. Uh, On the other hand, um, given that there were eight signers from Pennsylvania, if we learned about half of those signers, then I could say that we um, still um, met our objective. So our uh, leadoff bonus question for this um, podcast episode is going to be the following. How many men born outside of America, signed the United States Constitution? I'll give you all some uh, choices for answers. Choice A, was it 10? Choice B, is it 5? Choice C, 7? The answer is choice C, 7. Seven signers, whom 7 out of 39 signers, rather, I should say, whom signed the United States Constitution, were born um, outside of America. I can name a few of those uh, for you. Um, Alexander Hamilton, who um, was a signer from New York. He was born in uh, what we now know as the West Indies. Um, James Wilson of uh, Pennsylvania, he originally hailed from Scotland. And if I could pick a third one that we will be uh, learning about... It'll be our first, um, the first of the uh, two uh, signers in this episode. His name is uh, Thomas Fitzsimmons. And where was uh, Thomas Fitzsimmons a native, uh, a native from? Was he a native of uh, Ireland, England, or Scotland? The answer is choice A. He was a native of Ireland. So, let's find out this about Thomas Fitzsimmons. Was he born before the French and Indian War broke out, or was he born shortly after that infamous Seven Years' War started? Uh, The answer is choice A. He was born well before the French and Indian War broke out. He was born in the year 1741, but he came to America in the mid-1750s by establishing their roots, or rather their new home base in Philadelphia. So, if he was born in 1741, that would make him two years older than Thomas Jefferson, who would be born in 1743. 
that makes him uh, four years younger than John Hancock of Massachusetts. That also makes him about uh, six years younger than uh, Paul Revere, John Adams, nine years younger than um, George Washington. I know it might seem odd to be throwing out uh, names of other forefathers in trying to make a comparison with, you know, how old one might be or what's the age difference between one signer versus another. But I do find it interesting that um, in terms of the uh, age differences in in a fair number of the men who uh, signed uh, the U.S. Constitution, because not everybody was of the same age. And perhaps that's a good thing. Perhaps there needed to be diversity amongst the men in attendance uh, based upon their age. After all, younger aged men needed to learn um, as much as possible from men whom had been around longer than they had. After all, you know, Benjamin Franklin was the oldest of all the delegates at the convention, and even though he may not have um, played the grandest of roles there, as I had mentioned from the previous uh, episode, Franklin um, did break the ice on many of occasions where he was able to diffuse tense situations by sharing uh, stories or what we might call parables or uh, lessons. So it is fair to say that those whom did not know Benjamin Franklin that well in person before the Constitutional Convention benefited greatly from many of the uh, sages' um, wise words. Remember what sage means, folks? One of the one of the terms for sage meaning a wise person. So um, back on focus here with where we need to be. Uh, for uh, Thomas uh, Fitzsimmons, he worked in the um, mercantile business, or rather, I should say, his father worked in the mercantile business. And as for young Thomas. He followed in his dad's footsteps. And it is fair to say that many um, children, especially sons, did follow in their father's footsteps, uh, depending upon the profession, but it turns out that there was a fair number of them who did. And what is um, important on November 23rd, 1761, for Thomas Fitzsimmons? Well, you know, by this time he's 20 years old. Does he go off to uh, fight in the French and Indian War, or does he get married? Choice B, he gets married. He marries a lady named Catherine Mead, whose brother George teamed up with Thomas in running a successful trading firm that concentrated heavily in the West Indies. Okay? You know, it's one thing to marry into a family, but more often than not, Who's not to say that when you marry into a family that you have potential at this time of uh, partnering up with, a, with a, say, a brother-in-law or another relative on, say, on your wife's uh, side of the family. And by partnering up with um, one or two of those family members, you never know where the success might take you. So <clears throat> what I do know is that this uh, firm that uh, Thomas Fitzsimmons joined with um, his wife's brother, the firm itself was around for about 40 years. So that ought to tell you right there just how successful the firm alone it was. Not just the firm itself, but the leadership that went, that also uh, was brought about uh, in ensuring the firm's overall success, being that of 
Thomas Fitzsimmons and uh, Catherine's brother, George. All right, here's a question for you all. What made Thomas Fitzsimmons different religion-wise? Well, you know, when I think of religion, you know, there's obviously Protestant and then there's Catholic. Of course, we also should keep in mind, too, that um, just because you were of the Protestant faith or, or had a um, religion that um, was that of Protestant, it might not have automatically guaranteed your rights to worship freely. Like, for example, in Virginia, if you were a member of the Church of England, a.k.a. Anglican Church, then you could worship freely. In other words, you were entitled to religious freedom. But if you were a Baptist in Virginia, good luck. You were uh, jailed. Uh, you could have been um, forced to leave the colony. Uh, Baptists, by far, were uh, vigorously persecuted in, in Virginia because of their um, of their religious beliefs. In other words, they um, those of the Anglican Church did not like the Baptists because they saw the Baptists as a huge uh, threat to um, not just to the church, but to the state of Virginia. So, in other words, a threat to church and state. But for Thomas Fitzsimmons, he's not of the Protestant faith. So, what does that mean, folks? If he's not Protestant, he's a Catholic. And because he was a Catholic, is it fair to say that before his family came to America, that there was a strong wave of anti-Catholic sentiment? And did it remain that way even after his family came to America? The answer to both of those questions is yes. Anti-Catholic sentiment remained very high. <clears throat> Many colonists, regardless of where they lived, saw Catholics as agents of the papacy. What does the papacy mean, or papacy, however you want to pronounce it? That is uh, what that means, the papacy or papacy, is that it's in um, direct correlation in working directly to the Pope. In other words, if you were living in America and you, and you wanted to practice Catholicism, people who were of the Protestant faith saw, could have seen you as someone who was working secretly for the Pope. Not just working for the, directly for the Pope, but on the Pope's behalf overseas. And if that is unpleasant enough, um, if you were Catholic in colonial America, you were barred from worshiping in public, to holding public office, as well as practicing law, including voting. We must keep in mind, folks, that um, there were a lot of uh, religious uh, conflicts in Europe before, um, before uh, mass waves of immigrants or not just waves of immigrants, but um, but men who, especially men, when I say men, like most notably with Jamestown, 1606-1607, that many people who came to America came in escape of uh, religious persecution. We know that, for example, if you were a French Huguenot in France, you did have um, safety, you did have uh, your right to practice your um, Protestant faith freely until about um, the, the very end of the 16th century when the Edict of Nantes was um, enacted into law, which pretty much uh, barred um, French Huguenots from 
practicing their uh, faith uh, freely to the point where the French Huguenots were vigorously uh, persecuted. Their land was taken from them. They were jailed against their own will. So we must keep in mind that religion itself was one of the greatest undoings of mankind, not just leading up to um, leading up to the time when um, people started leaving Europe to come to America to uh, establish new settlements in the um, in what we would eventually call colonial America. But we must keep in mind that religious persecution is something that's been going on since the beginning of time. Even Jesus himself um, witnessed it. But um, if you if there was one colony in particular that could have given people some form of um, sanctu of a religious sanctuary um, site in terms of being able to practice their faith um, in a modified manner, it might have been uh, Maryland. And the only reason I say Maryland is because about uh, maybe close to 20% of the population at one time in the early days of the, that colony settlement was Catholics, was that of Catholic uh, faith after all. Um, the Calverts, led by Cecil Calvert, and then you would eventually get a family known as the Carols of Maryland. Uh, for those of you who were with me when, when we uh, did Signing Their Lives Away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, you had a man named Charles Carroll, who was the only signer um, to the Declaration of Independence who was Roman Catholic, and how ironic, he was also the last signer to die. So it just goes to show you that... <clears throat> Even though Catholics may have been in the minority, they still had their presence made known, but it was something that evolved over time. But unfortunately for many Catholics, before, seven, before the 1760s and as well as before the 1770s, Catholics really are not uh, welcomed into any kind of public service arena. So... I'm sure most of you all are wondering, okay, if Thomas Fitzsimmons is Catholic, then how does he stand any chance of making, his, of making a name for himself in America? Well, let's find that out. Fitzsimmons somehow avoided being excluded, considering he most likely became the first ever Roman Catholic elected to a public office. In 1771, he saw Fitzsimmons became uh, the vice president of the Fraternal Organization, or what was known as the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick. That may not seem like the most um, prestigious organization, but, but he is a part of it. And yes, it would be geared towards those of the uh, Catholic faith, but maybe it's fair to say that uh, Thomas Fitzsimmons didn't um, create, what do you call it, scenes that uh, led to um, problems. In other words, Thomas Fitzsimmons knew that many people of his faith were pretty much excluded from not being allowed to enjoy the, the daily rights that um, people of Protestant faith could have on a daily basis. But somehow, Thomas Fitzsimmons found a way to persevere and maybe by not being so vocal day in and day out, speaking in opposition against injustices, maybe that could have saved him from 
the inevitable, and that is being persecuted, not just because of his faith, but but in some instances when people did get persecuted, it was a result of repetitive violations in regards to disturbing the peace. I must admit this, folks. I mean, I learned this at Colonial Williamsburg, that if you did disturb the peace, you could have been put away um, in jail for a few nights. You could have been sent to the pillory uh, You, as a means of... Um, letting outsiders know what kind of um, grievances you may have committed. I mean, after all, when you got sent to the pillory, everybody knew that you had done something that was pretty embarrassing. But in 1774, uh, Thomas Fitzsimmons's uh, big move politically was uh, at the first... Uh, he didn't attend the first uh, Continental um, Congress, but he joined a committee in Philadelphia that was in response to the opposition of Parliament's coercive acts, which, you know, pretty much closed the port of Boston, relocated it to Salem, um, pretty much shut down the, um, not, it didn't shut down the court system altogether, but it pretty much um, removed the traditional appointment of jurors who were impartial and instead replaced um, not just jurors, but rather justices of the peace who were loyal to the crown, a.k.a. loyalists. Did Thomas Fitzsimmons play an active role once war broke out with England? Yes. So what kind of role did he play? Would it be fair to say by this point in time, though, folks, that people are a little bit more open, that maybe people are less inclined to rush to judgment and say, oh, Fitzsimmons is Catholic, he can't be a part of the um, movement in terms of, um, in terms of uh, supporting the, uh, the cause for uh, war against England. No, people, had, I think by this point, are starting to put aside their personal differences over time, but they are starting to put aside differences in religion and come together for the common good to try to um, to try to either ex hope that the olive branch petition will succeed, and if not, then we have no other choice. Okay, and to you know consider separation from England. But as for Thomas Fitzsimmons, he goes about helping organize the Pennsylvania militia in 1775, along with venturing to New Jersey, where he lended his support to George Washington's forces. New Jersey. How about, remember folks, December 1776, Christmas night. What did George Washington and the remainder of his continental, of the Continental Army do? Remember that mission, victory or death? Thomas Fitzsimmons was a part of it. He was a part of the uh, mission that, um, that crossed uh, the Delaware River. And um, after Christmas uh, evening, the next day, early morning, the attack on Trenton helps capture over 900 Hessian soldiers. Yeah, Thomas Fitzsimmons was part of that. And at, the, and at that point in time, I think it's fair to say that Washington's not interested in people's religious backgrounds. What he cares more about is that people, that, is that he has enough men still left who can um, not only fight for the cause for independence, but can do the unthinkable by defeating the enemy by surprise and restoring morale. That's what he really was more concerned about at this point. And then um, 
another battle in New Jersey where Fitzsimmons was present was at uh, Princeton, which um, those two battles were the two that really restored morale for the Continental Army. So, you know, yes, he's, he's joined Washington's forces in New Jersey, and he goes on to hold the rank of captain. He served on the Committee of Safety, which was a military governmental group whom oversaw defending the public. And, of course, we all should know when, when, it, when they say defending the public, how about the American people? You know, it's one thing for there to be a war, folks, but, they've, but you've also got to have a committee of safety. I mean, you know, people in their communities need to be uh, protected. We may not be able to have um, soldiers around the communities all the time, but there has to be some means of safety. After all, you never know when um, British forces could come into your, onto your property, seize your livestock, maybe hold your family hostage. And that kind of stuff did go on, folks. So, you know, after all, it is important to have a committee of safety. After 1781, being the British surrender at Yorktown, Thomas Fitzsimmons worked alongside Robert Morris, whom had created America's first bank, a.k.a. Bank of, a no bank of North America. So I found that to be pretty cool that uh, Thomas Fitzsimmons uh, had worked alongside uh, Mr. Morris in helping create our nation's first bank. And between 1782-1783, uh, Fitzsimmons served in, in the Congress of Confederation. That was the uh, congressional body that operated under that um, infamous Articles of Confederation. Of course, remember, folks, that was the government that was in existence before um, before it got scrapped altogether for what we still have in place after 233-some years. You know, I know I may have mentioned this from, a, I think it was the podcast on um, New York it was, when we talked about Alexander Hamilton, and we learned that only 12 delegates from five states attended. Did... Um, Thomas Fitzsimmons, was he one of those 12 delegates that attended the Annapolis Convention? Yes, he was. And he did support major reform to the Articles of Confederation. But in the end, he was probably like everyone else and realized that, okay, well, yes, maybe the Articles of Confederation does need reform, but the reform itself is going to have to be bigger to where the Articles of Confederation may no longer be what we have been accustomed to for some time, being in the last six uh, years, being from 1781 to uh, 1786, folks. Now, uh, while attending uh, the Constitutional Convention, what all did Thomas Fitzsimmons support? He favored a strong national government to making property ownership mandatory and voting for members of Congress to having government regulate trade and commerce. I find the one interesting about making property ownership mandatory. Well, we should keep in mind that at one time, in colonial times, and I know about this, especially in having gone to Williamsburg, they tell you at the Capitol, there were about five requirements in order to... Um, hold any kind to hold public office that is to serve as a member of the house of burgesses well for one you had to be white two you had to be of uh, protestant uh, faith in other words you had to adhere to the church of england 
Three, uh, you had to um, you had to own at least 250 acres or more of land. And one of the other things I do know, um, I know I probably I know there's two more on there, but I do know actually I take it back. You also had to be 21 years of age or older. But I also know that um, that the, yes, that the property part of it all was the most essential one because at one time, if you at one time the only way you could vote or even hold any kind of um, office in Virginia was had all boiled down to property. I mean, yes, it's one thing if you own 25 acres of land, but it didn't automatically mean you could vote. So if you if you didn't uh, meet the proper qualification qualifications for uh, holding public office or let alone vote or let alone just owning land, good luck being able to vote. Because we should keep in mind that the uh, House of Burgesses in Virginia, for example, they represent the Burgesses were looking after their interests, but they really were only representing about 10 percent of the um, population in Virginia. And who do you think that 10 percent might have been the wealthy, the aristocratic elite, a.k.a. the gentry. So it could be fair to say that for Thomas Fitzsimmons favoring a strong national government and making property ownership mandatory, maybe that was his way of saying that maybe the wealthy and the well-educated should be the ones not only running the government, but also being allowed to vote. Because if you're wealthy, you obviously have enough to give and to offer. If you're not wealthy, then what all are you going to have to offer? Not much of anything. So in his eyes, it all comes down to what you have to offer and where your status stands in the greater society. For Thomas Fitzsimmons, he favored the Virginia Plan, which was the plan for which representat representation in Congress would be based on population per each state. That's the exact opposite of the New Jersey Plan, folks. Remember the New Jersey Plan was the one that was pretty much one vote Regardless of size, everybody has the same vote, regardless of um, regardless of different population um, sizes. Every, it would always be the same vote. But nope, the Virginia plan is the exact opposite. Although Fitzsimmons favored this plan, he did support uh, Roger Sherman's Great Compromise. And it turns out that uh, Fitzsimmons was one of uh, two Catholics uh, to sign the U.S. Constitution. I'm sure many of y'all are wondering who would be that other Catholic. Well, I'll tell you this much. Uh, we'll um, get to that somewhere down the road in the near future. So it's interesting enough, Charles Carroll from Maryland, uh, he was the only Roman Catholic signer to sign the Declaration of Independence. But how ironic in the Constitution, there were two out of 39 signers that were, that were um, Catholics. Did Fitzsimmons serve um, in Congress? He served uh, three terms in Congress as a member of the House of Representatives. Was Fitzsimmons active in finance and philanthropy? Okay, we all know what philanthropy should be because I mentioned it um, in, from the previous uh, podcast with Benjamin Franklin. You know, he was a very successful philanthropist. You know, philanthropists are those who give money for generous causes, and it can be like giving money to, say, your alma mater, money to a, um, a charity organization, money where a place of um, 
learning or just a, a place is struggling to stay afloat and you are willing to give money to that place so that they will not only benefit short term but long term. So when you think of philanthropy, how about you think of it as donating money, um, donating money for any kind of a cause that is noteworthy. So the answer is yes, Fitzsimmons was active in finance and philanthropy. He served as the president of the Insurance Company of North America. He was also a trustee to Penn University. And whom founded Penn University, folks? Benjamin Franklin. He also um, helped co-chair, <laughs> I thought this was interesting, he co helped co-chair a farewell dinner for George Washington at the end of his presidency. I should also point out that Fitzsimmons was the largest financial supporter behind the construction of St. Augustine's Roman Catholic Church in Philadelphia. Well, let me ask you this to finish it up on Fit Thomas Fitzsimmons. Did he become a man of money for all the right reasons? Yes. But is it fair to say that Fitzsimmons also got embroiled in land speculation dealings like some of our other um, signers that we have learned about from the recent podcast episodes got involved in, like, say, Jonathan Dayton of New Jersey, uh, Robert Morris of Pennsylvania. Did Thomas Fitzsimmons fall into that category? Yes, he did. On the other hand, though, Fitzsimmons didn't... Um, do what Jonathan Dayton and Robert Morris did in terms of he didn't go about conducting himself like they did with the uh, land speculation uh, dealings. It turns out that Ro that Thomas Fitzsimmons lent vast sums of money to friends. For all we know, he could have lent money to Robert Morris. I don't know if he lent money to Jonathan Dayton, but he lent money to friends whom of his who were involved in these uh, land speculation deals. And what happened to Robert Mo to Thomas Fitzsimmons? He never got anything back in return. In other words, he lent, he pretty much lent his fortune away. And, and it was all gone. I hate to say this, but I really do believe the man was taken advantage of. He died on August 26th, 1811, just shy of turning 70. And he is buried at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church in Philadelphia's Historic District. And uh, what a coincidence. My wife and I actually saw that Catholic Church as we were walking around the Historic District. As a matter of fact, St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church, I believe that dates back to um, the 1750s, I want to say. I think about 1759. But it is the oldest uh, Roman Catholic Church in Philadelphia. And as a matter of fact, Philadelphia was the first uh, major city to um, become a haven for Catholics in terms of allowing Catholics to worship their faith freely without having to live in fear of um, any unnecessary religious persecutions. So remember that, folks, when you think of Philadelphia, think of that as being the first major city that, that welcomed uh, Catholics in terms of being of letting them uh, preach their um, or practice their faith um, in a, in a non-violent uh, manner. Our second signer we're going to learn about um, is Jared Ingersoll. I never knew anything about Jared Ingersoll or didn't even know that he had even 
been a signer to the Constitution until I uh, read this book. And I'm sure most of you all probably have never heard of his name, but that's okay. But I'm going to um, introduce him to you all. Was Jared Ingersoll born in Philadelphia? Yes or no? Was he born there? No. Um, however, he was born in uh, New England. Was he born in Boston, Massachusetts, or New Haven, Connecticut? He was born October. He was born on October twenty seventh, seventeen forty nine, in New Haven, Connecticut. Turns out he was the son of a wealthy lawyer, whose loyalties were to king and country. Okay, so now all of a sudden, folks, we're going to be learning about a signer who grew up in a loyalist home. And I'm sure you all are wondering, okay, if this guy grew up in a loyalist home, then why would he want to sign a document that and that would be, you know, pro-America? Of course, here we are in the post-Revolutionary War era, but why is it that this man still remained loyal to America when he had grown up in a family that was loyal to king and country? Well, I'm going to answer those questions for you. But before I do that, though, I should point out that, yes, his father was a wealthy lawyer, as we all know, whose loyalties were to king and country. And how about this? His father supported that unpopular. He supported a lot of uh, parliamentary measures that were very unpopular in America. But one in particular he was very big on supporting was that Stamp Act. Taxation without representation. He was in favor of placing stamps on all paper documents. What other job did uh, Jared's father hold that was dangerous? What do you think could have been the most dangerous job someone could have held in colonial America in the 1760s? And even at the start of the 1770s, but no, most notably the 1760s after the French and Indian War has come to an end. How about tax collector? And being a tax collector in England was just as dangerous also. So let's not always assume that it was just in uh, colonial America. But during the mid-1760s, uh, uh, Jared's father was a tax collector. And something that I should point out here is that one night or evening, the elder Ingersoll was riding by horseback, only to be confronted by an angry mob whom demanded he resign whom demanded that he resign his post, rather, I should say. It turns out that the elder Ingersoll went about resigning his post without even putting up a fight. We're not talking, folks, about 10 or 20 people. We're talking about well over 100 people whom demanded that Jared's father resign. That's how angry this mob was. And let's remember, folks, in 18th century... When we think of the term mob, we're not talking organized crime. We're talking about unruly crowds, people who are, are very unstable, people who may have a good message, but at the same time, people whom are unpredictable, whom can mobilize from all directions. So it's not long afterwards that the Ingersoll family uh, moves southward to Philadelphia. So they pretty much moved there in, in terms of escaping all of the uh, angry um, mob violence. And after all, folks, is it fair to say that Philadelphia is 
one of those cities that is home to a leading uh, loyalist population. Yes. So if that's the case, it is also fair to say that the Ingersoll family will fit, will fit perfectly in. 1766, what's important in this year for uh, young Jared Ingersoll? He graduates from Yale and goes about clerking for his father. And at this time, Jared Ingersoll, he's only about 17 years old, so if his father isn't, um, isn't all for supporting the uprising movement, Jared's on the same boat as his father, correct? Absolutely so. I think it'd be fair to say at this point if Jared wasn't, it's not funny, but it, it did happen a lot. Family members did disown one another, all in the name of loyalties. So had Jared at this point in his life at age 17 decided, hey, Dad, I'm going to be a patriot, not only would Jared have not been able to have clerked for his dad, but Jared could have been disowned by his family. So loyalties are very um, fragile during this time. It probably won't be, it, it wasn't the first time, and it certainly wasn't the last time either that loyalties would be tested in America's uh, history. Did Jared Ingersoll study law in America or overseas in Europe? Turns out he studied law at London, England's Middle Temple, which was a very, very prestigious law school. Matter of fact, some other uh, forefathers of ours um, studied at, the, at London, at, studied at um, London's Middle Temple, and there's a good chance we might find out about a few of those uh, other signers in uh, future podcast episodes. So from 1773 to 1776, Jared lived in Europe to avoid political unrest in America. And he was, not just to avoid the political unrest in America, but how about the political unrest in America that involved Britain and her subjects? And who are her subjects, folks? The 13 colonies, as King George III would go about describing the 13 colonies you know what he called them? His ungrateful subjects. While overseas in Europe during that time from 1773 to 1776, whom did Jared become acquainted with? Who do you think is living in Europe during this time that, um, that um, he's, he's one of those uh, forefathers who's ubiquitous. He's, uh, he's seen everywhere. He's, he's invented Things like bifocals to um, the lightning rod. Um, matter of fact, my wife and I visited his museum while in Philadelphia. The answer is easy, folks. Benjamin Franklin. That's whom Jared Ingersoll became acquainted with. And is it possible that maybe, just maybe, that Benjamin Franklin could have made a difference in Jared Ingersoll's life? I think it's possible. Anybody who came into contact with Benjamin Franklin um, had was positively impacted by him. After all, Thomas Paine was. I mean, Benjamin Franklin was the one that paid for Thomas Paine's voyage from England to Philadelphia where he could start a new life. If Thomas Paine had not met Benjamin Franklin, who's to say that Thomas Paine there's a strong likelihood that Payne himself may never have made it over to England, and we probably never would have heard of that famous pamphlet, Common Sense. 
But here's the, the kicker right here. What's important about 1778? Is Jared Ingersoll back in America? Yes, he is. He returns to America with a change in personal loyalties. Did you hear that, folks? A change in personal loyalties. So where were his loyalties before and right around the time he came out, he left for Europe? He was a loyalist, just like his dad. They were loyal to king and country. But when Jared comes back to the United States, or rather I should say to colonial America, his loyalties have changed. He has gone from a loyalist to a patriot. Historians to this day, though, aren't 100% sure what led to Jared's switch in loyalty allegiances, but if you ask me, I strongly believe that Benjamin Franklin's presence, in terms of Jared being acquainted with him, may have been his saving grace. That's just me, but I do believe that that could have been his saving grace. I do believe it's also fair to say that maybe Jared found learned that there that not everyone in parliament was for um was for uh how do i call it for punishing the colonists in other words he probably learned about men like uh, william pitt whom um spoke out on the uh defense of the colonists behalf he probably also learned about men like um john wilkes and isaac barry for whom uh, wilkes barry pennsylvania is named after those two um, men in Parliament were the ones that coined the phrase Sons of Liberty. So remember, folks, Sons of Liberty didn't get started in America in terms of its um, name. That was done in uh, England. So it is very well, very fair to say that Jared Ingersoll was witnessing um, a lot of um, great awakenings in England and becoming acquainted with Benjamin Franklin was just one of the many uh, great awakenings he witnessed that helped him uh, convert his allegiance from loyalist to patriot. 1781, uh, Jared marries Elizabeth Pettit. She is the daughter of a wealthy merchant, and they have four children. Was Jared Ingersoll an ardent supporter behind central authority? Yes, he firmly believed in a strong na national government that had broad powers. And what kind of broad powers would a, a strong national government need? How about the power to tax? How about the power to maintain and provide for an army and navy? How about the need to impose tariffs? How about the, the power to regulate trade and commerce? Just to name a few broad powers, but yes, he firmly believes it. After the U.S. Constitution was signed, Jared returned to practicing law and made an even bigger name for himself by doing exactly what? Well, if he's a lawyer, you know, lawyers can make big names for themselves, okay? But now that we have a government in place, and now that we, in terms of a constitution that's in effect, what, what branch of government could Jared Ingersoll go to and argue a case? How about the United States Supreme Court, folks, a.k.a. the, judici the judicial branch? He per Ingersoll participated in various landmark U.S. Supreme Court cases in the early years of the court's existence. 
One case in particular I found interesting was that in 1793, the case was known as Chisholm, C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M, versus Georgia. Ingersoll represented the state of Georgia. It, this was a state's rights case. The court, unfortunately, ruled against Ingersoll, stating that a state could, in fact, be sued in federal court by a person from another state. Um, that was just a basic 101, um, and what do you call it, example that I could give you of a case that he represented, that he was involved in on the high court, but it just goes to show you just how successful of a lawyer he was to be able to have gone as high up as arguing a case on the Supreme Court, and that still is the case even in today's uh, modern world or modern U.S. government, rather, I should say. Besides being a lawyer, what other posts did uh, Jared Ingersoll hold in Pennsylvania politics? He served as the Attorney General from, 1790s, from 1790 to 1799, as well as from 1811 to 1817. He was the U.S. District Attorney for Pennsylvania from 1800 to 1801. He also served as a judge in Philadelphia's district court from 1821 to 1822. So, I will say this, folks. Jared Ingersoll had a very brilliant mind to have been able to have served in all these various um, posts in terms of judici judicial um, posts. I mean, to me, I think that's... Um, uh, not just so much ju judicial posts, but posts that involve the law. Let's put it this way. I mean, I would say that he definitely had a brilliant mind, to say the least, to be able to do that kind of stuff. And would it be fair to say that uh, Jared Ingersoll's political party affiliation was that of a, a federalist? You know, when I think of strong national government and broad powers, I think of federalists. Yes, he was a federalist. And... How about this, folks? In 1812, Ingersoll ran under the Federalist ticket as DeWitt Clinton's vice presidential running mate. Do any of you all remember when we talked about the, for those of you who were with me when we uh, talked about um, the Erie Canal and the making of a great nation, a.k.a. the wedding of the waters, who was the leading uh, spokesperson in New York behind getting the Erie Canal um, started, or rather, even something that was um, feasible, that was DeWitt Clinton. He was the one that went tirelessly above and beyond to get the ball rolling to where the Erie Canal um, would go about linking the Atlantic, where the Atlantic Ocean linked the canal with the waters as far west as the Great Lakes. So, when, so for those of you who haven't um, listened to my podcast series on Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation, definitely check that out. It's very well worth it. Did Jared Ingersoll participate in Western land speculation dealings? Yes, he did. Might be fair to say that nobody was immune from this stuff. Like other well-known Constitution signers, Ingersoll himself invested heavily and he, too, experienced negative repercussions. I know that he didn't lend his, all of his money away, but what I found interesting, based off of what the authors, being Denise Kiernan and Joseph D. Agnes, described Ingersoll, 
you know, as times change, people's fashions change, clothing styles change. Of course, that's still the same way even in today's modern world. But Jared Ingersoll's taste in clothing still remained intact, even after it went out of style. Could that have partly been attributed to the fact that he had lost money from those Western land speculation dealings and simply just did not have enough money to invest in new clothing? Perhaps so. He basically was seen as a man who struggled to keep up with changing fashions of the times. But you know what? It didn't bother him. The bottom line is, hey, if you still had clothing that you knew looked good on you, wear it. Ingersoll died on October 31st, 1822 at the age of 73. You know, 73 was pretty old back then. To think he lived, um, four, he died four years before Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. He, uh, he pretty much was alive to see the, our nation's first five presidents. He didn't get to live to see all of James Monroe's presidency, but he lived long enough to have seen the Erie Canal be um, to be be worked on. He he may not have lived all the way to have seen it be completely finished, but he lived long enough to see um, one of the engineering marvels be um, constructed. He also lived um, to see other uh, unique things happen, like especially with the Louisiana Purchase um, 20 years earlier in 1803. So, you know, yes, even for some of our forefathers who weren't, who didn't have the same recognition as other prominent forefathers, they still got to um, accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, and they still played a role in shaping our nation's um, foundation. So, where what where did Pennsylvania fall on the domino in terms of um, signing the con not just signing the Constitution but having its state ratify the Constitution? Did Pennsylvania um, ratify as a state ratify the Constitution in 1787 or 1788? On December 12, 1787, Pennsylvania became the second state to ratify. Gee, I wonder who was first. But who knows? Maybe we might find that out in our next podcast series when I'm on the air again next. But December 12, 1787, Pennsylvania was the second state to ratify. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. And um, thank you again, as always, for listening. And I just want to tell you all this. I'm, I'll probably say this again at some other point down the road. But with all that's going on in the world right now, thank heavens we do have some uh, bright spots with the Olympics right now. You know, continue to learn everything there is possible about historical subjects or topics that, you know, fascinate you. I'm always trying to learn something new about um the American Revolution, uh, given that that's one of my favorite pieces of time to learn about. You know, just when I think I've learned everything there is to know, I'm always discovering that, well, there is something new, and that's good. That's a good thing about history. Of course, I'm still reminding myself that, well, yes, there is, there, yes, that while history does have a lot of good things to learn about, that 
at the same time, there are unpleasant trees in history that can't be ignored. But what I strongly recommend all of you do is that pass along the word to those who would like to learn more about history. Find ways to encourage those who may not seem to be interested and find ways to get them to be more interested because I don't know what the future holds 10 or 20 years from now. I'm not here to discuss politics with you all, but we are the future. It's up to us. It truly is up to us to set an example for those not only here in the United States, but for those abroad to, to be better educated because we, we have something that we need to um, share with people. We, have, we all have gifts, but we've got to be able to tell our fellow brethren or our fellow friends, whether at home or abroad, we've got to be able to find ways to, to just spread the word about the importance of learning about history, even when it may not always seem pretty. Because if we don't, then we stand a greater chance of becoming ignorant. And if we don't do anything about curtailing ignorance, it's only going to lead to further problems down the road. So there again, it's up to us to continue to learn about the past so that, yes, certain mistakes won't get made again in the present, but also in the future. But we can rise from all of this. So keep listening. I will continue to do everything there is on, in, in my power to share with you all what I enjoy that's relevant, that's meaningful, that's educational, because, if I, because, because that's the only way I know uh, to get this word out. So again, thank you to all of you who have been listening to my podcast since June of last year. Continue to do so. Continue to spread the word to others who want to learn more about history, but tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. The results go beyond the sky ceiling. I know this because I've gotten over 9,000 plays. I'm in 36 nations around the world. But all of this was made possible by you all, my listeners. I'm not in it for the income. I'm in it for the outcome. And that's where you all have made the difference. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Stay safe, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Good night.